So we're in the book of Acts. The church is expanding. There was persecution a few years ago in the early church. Anybody remember who was the main persecutor? It was Paul. Paul gets miraculously saved. God intervenes, and we see a time of expansion in the church. Right? The gospel is going forth, going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now it's gone all the way to Antioch. It's, it's, it's hitting the Roman culture, and not just with the word, but with signs and wonders. People are getting raised from the dead. People are getting healed. Peter speaks to Cornelius, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's tangible, so God is on the move. God is on the offensive and uh, the favor of God is on the church, right? So the tide is turned. We're moving forward. Paul's with Barnabas for about a year. They're teaching in Antioch. Antioch becomes uh, perhaps you'd say the center of the early church. There becomes a transition from Jerusalem to Antioch. But now the tides have turned again. And we've got Herod, who's, who's actually the, the political authority, in Judea, and he's not a very good one because he's killing Christians. Why, why do you think he's killing Christians? Just any thoughts on that? Fear, okay. Uh, anybody want to expand on that idea? I think that's a good answer. Okay. S- Okay, no, I, I think those are, are good answers. Uh, his granddaddy was Herod the Great. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great did some not-so-great things. And you probably know what those not-so-great things are, right? I mean, you see a family line of sin, a family line of self-glorification, of pride. Um, so he's the grandson, and he's walking in the ways of his grandfather. Herod wants power. He wants to keep the peace of Rome. You keep the peace of Rome by squelching anything that could cause any sort of upheaval because it makes you look bad, right? So the Orthodox Jews are not excited about this sect, these Jesus followers. They're pulling disciples away. So the Jews, it actually says in the, the text, the Jews who are not Christians liked seeing these Christians get killed. Okay. And Herod sees this and he's like, you know what? I want to win the favor of the Jews. They're the main power here. So I'm going to keep killing Christians. James was, um, you remember the sons of Zebedee? You have James and John, the sons of Thunder. He's one of the 12 original apostles and he gets killed by the sword and that's a big deal when you think of of um, Stephen who was the first martyr he's operating in signs and wonders and he gets killed Um, Herod is going after the leaders of the church uh, the pillars of the church the pillars of this new movement that are stewarding and releasing the kingdom of God that was a big loss to the early church to see uh, James get slaughtered. Um, 
So you got a bad dude named Herod who has all political authority over Judea. He's killing Christians. He's got an agenda to kill more Christians. What do you think is going on behind the scenes there? Any thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now let, let's think there's two kingdoms. Well, we could say there's three kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man, there's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of, of Satan. There's three powers at work. And the kingdom of man is led by, doesn't the Bible say the prince of the power of the air? So behind the scenes, uh, there might be some really strong demonic powers that are moving through a very strong political authority to try and wipe out the kingdom of God. Okay, and I, I think this is important to understand that behind challenging circumstances often is the accuser, the destroyer of our souls. It says in the Bible that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. There is an evil power at work trying to wreak, wreak havoc in Christians' lives every day trying to destroy families, trying to destroy communities, trying to create division in the church, trying to cause conflict in your, your work. And that's real. It's right. And in our government, right? I mean, there are, there are powers and principalities that move through governments. That's reality. That's real reality. Um, it is important who the president is because there are literal powers that, move through presidents and certain worldviews are literally demonic and some of them are not. Some worldview, I will say the one worldview is um, declares the lordship of Jesus Christ. All the other ones don't. So um, politicians are important. We should pray for them to line up with God's truth and God's worldview Who's the greatest authority in the church right now in Acts 12? Peter. It's probably Peter. Some might say Paul. Paul is like growing in stature. He's growing in influence. Peter, I think, is regarded as the head apostle. And he's seen God do amazing things through him. But now all of a sudden, he's behind bars and he's got chains on his hands and his freedoms have been robbed from him. And um, he knows what happened to James. He knows what happened to these other people. He knows that Herod, the, the, the entire political system of Judea, is wanting him dead. That's probably not a very fun place to be. Okay? And if natural circumstances play out, he's going to get his head chopped off. All right? So try and, try and empathize with Peter. Things are looking really, 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 really bad. Hopeless unless you have faith. His circumstances are hopeless unless he has faith that God will intervene. And the church, it, it says they're in earnest prayer. They're in earnest prayer. So they're laying down other things they might, they could be doing. Because Peter, you know, you think of these two, this power struggle of, of earthly authorities. So Herod is being influenced by the devil to take out Christian leaders 
you've got the primary Christian leader who is now under that political regime is being oppressed, who's, who's maybe going to be killed, looks like he's going to be killed, and he's God's best representative right now. He, he stewards the greatest authority in the world for the kingdom of God, and I think that's all also important to be aware of. There, there is a battle of powers. There is a battle of kingdoms. There is a crisis in the church, the biggest crisis the, the new church has seen. Our greatest leader is going to die. Unless, unless. So it happens during Passover. The Jews don't like people getting slaughtered on Passover for some reason. The seven days after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So P Peter's got a few days in here to suffer and to have those chains on him and be around those four squadrons of s soldiers and think about his maybe impending doom. But the church is in earnest prayer, and Peter's probably in earnest prayer. And I think of Paul, who when he was in prison, he didn't give in to despair. He didn't give in to discouragement. He's singing hymns. He's got blood pouring down his back. And he's singing hymns. And Peter probably got beat up a little bit when he was arrested. That kind of stuff happened. Okay, He's probably got bruises. He's probably hurting. He's probably in pain. But knowing Peter, and he knew Jesus, and he saw Jesus in his resurrection body, he's looking beyond natural, impossible circumstances, and so is the early church. How many people are dealing with almost impossible circumstances now? Hard circumstances. Hard. Hard. Life is hard circumstances. We've got some people who are. And if God didn't exist, and if we didn't have faith, and if we didn't have the resource of prayer, then our circumstances will consume us. Okay? Probably all of us have been through hard circumstances in our lives. Maybe almost intolerable. Apostle Paul said he despaired of life, right? Maybe you lose your job. Maybe somebody betrays you. Maybe a loved one um, dies or, or something's going on there. And, and your source of foundation, emotional sustenance is collapsing uh, right before your eyes. And you've got two choices. Just like the church had two choices when Peter's put in prison. You either give up, you respond in despair, you respond in doubt, or you say, God's bigger than this. God's bigger than this, and I can do something about it by getting on my knees. I can do something about this circumstance by getting on my knees and praying for three hours straight to God earnestly. Because the Bible says that the earnest, effectual prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. So in other words, our prayer has impact. Our prayer in faith transforms circumstances, changes people's hearts, changes nations. The prayers of the saints, I've been, I thought this morning, what, what are the most powerful resources we have? One I'd say is love. I'd say the Spirit of God. But I want to say the prayers of the saints. Our most powerful weapon is prayer. We pray to God, and God responds, and God reacts. He reacts, he responds to our situation according to his good pleasure and his good will. And it says in the book of James, you have not because you ask not. 
God's a good God. He gives good gifts to his people. But you know what? He does not reward passivity. He does not reward passivity. There have been many crises in my life, and I thank God that I did not respond in passivity. You start to embrace despair and hopelessness, and you know what? You're agreeing with Satan. You're agreeing with the spirits that are attacking you. You lose your job. You're hopeless. There won't be another one. It's all over. You're agreeing with the enemy. You're giving the enemy power over your mind, over your heart. And that can kill you. It can literally kill you. It can destroy your family. Right? So in my prayer life, by faith, I will pray for my family. I will pray for my situation at work. I will pray through whatever crisis I am going through, and I'm going to believe that God will respond in love and mercy and bring some sort of transformation in this circumstance. And the main transformation might be a heart attitude change in me. Okay? Amen. Amen. How many people have been in some sort of conflict the past couple weeks? How we respond to conflict is a big deal. Galatians 5, 19 through 23, we can turn there. The truth is conflict can make or break you, and if you are not biblical and how you handle conflict, it can really rob you of good things God has for you. Galatians 5, I'll start 19, it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things do not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, I'm probably going to preach a message on conflict, and that will be the entire message. Because people in the Midwest tend to be passive-aggressive. They tend to avoid conflict. They tend to let things build up out of fear and anxiety until it explodes, and then they address the issue, and it's done in a destructive way. They lose control. There's outbursts of anger. Uh, the person's offended, and then the other person tends to react. That's pretty much how the, I've seen people in the Midwest deal with conflict, and it is very unhealthy. It's very unbiblical. It's very destructive, right? The healthy way to deal with conflict 
is not to be aggressive and it's not to be passive. But it is to be honest, it's to be loving, it's to be in control. And in humility and grace, share your frustrations, share your concerns, and try and bring forth a resolution. Conflict des destroys churches, it destroys families if people can't handle it right. I want to bring up Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There is no crisis that's bigger than God in our lives. There is no circumstance that surprises God. It's going to surprise us, of course. And if we look to God, he's going to give us the resources that are necessary to overcome the crisis. We're not going to get beat up by the devil. We'll beat him up. And conflict is an opportunity to expand the kingdom of God. If you bring all of it to God and respond in a biblical way, that relationship should be strengthened. Now, even if you respond in a biblical way, it's not a guarantee that the other person will respond in a biblical way. But I'll tell you, when you get heated and you just think of yourself, not the greater good and not the good of the other person, you're sowing more discord into the relationship, into the conflict. So I think that our circumstances are not as important as how we respond to our circumstances. Jesus responded to conflict in his group of 12 with the Pharisees in a way where he was always in control. He brought understanding and reconciliation amongst his people. Of course, he couldn't satisfy the Pharisees because they hated him and they were demonized. Um, you're not going to be able to satisfy everybody, but if you satisfy God and deal with it in a way that honors him, that's a good thing, and God will bless you for it. Anybody think they could use a little work on conflict resolution? <laughs> so a little, there's some response there. So it, it's a big deal. I'm actually reading a 250-page book on peacemaking and dealing with conflict right now. And it's convicting, it's sanctifying, and it's edifying all at the same time. So the church is praying because they believe God is bigger than Herod. They believe God has more power than Herod. And they believe that God is greater than the injustice, than the persecution. They believe God is bigger than the chains that are binding Peter's body. They believe God's bigger than the four squads of soldiers. Um, the church doesn't look to the circumstances so much as it looks to the faithfulness of God. And God has a good track record of delivering his people, right? And you were in, some of you were in Sunday school, and you think of those great stories of deliverance with, like, David and Jonathan, and he raises up the judges, and pretty much every time the Israelites repent, and they do it a lot because they sin a lot, God delivers them. God loves delivering his people. He loves intervening and helping them out, and he does not delight in seeing us suffer. So prayer is powerful. And that's, you know, if there's one thing I want people to remember this morning is you have no clue how powerful your prayers are 
And if you want to see change, spend more time investing in prayer. Sometimes we need to shut up. We just need to shut our mouths. We need to. Because we're speaking on our own understanding and, and not by God's revelation. Maybe we're making something worse. And we need to line ourselves up with God. And we need to wait upon him and get revelation and then address a person, address a situation. Um, I don't think Peter was expecting an angel. I don't think the early church was expecting an angel. But God does supernatural deliverance for his people. He literally sends an angel who comes into that prison, wakes Peter up. The chains miraculously fall off of this guy. All the soldiers are in a deep sleep. Peter puts on his garments. There's the first gate. He's with the angel. It miraculously opens. There's the second gate. He's with the angel. It miraculously opens. So God literally supersedes natural law as a response to the prayer needs of his people. God, the ultimate power of the universe, is sticking it to the devil and is sticking it to Herod right now. He's saying, I'm in charge and I rule with love, and I rule with mercy, and I answer prayer, and I'm not power-hungry, and I'm not greedy, but I serve my people, and I deliver them, and I'm going to show you that I've got the power and how I use my power. So he did that. Peter was beside himself. He's like, what? This, this isn't a trans. This is like really happening? And then he knocks on the door, and this woman answers, and and she's beside herself, and these people, these believers are probably like still praying, God, set them free, do some. <laughs> and Peter's knocking on the door, and then this girl says, he's here, he's outside. No, that can't be Peter. It's got to be his angel. No, it's him, it's him, but they can't believe it. They maybe had faith the size of a mustard seed. They were not expecting Peter to be knocking on their door because he's got chains on him. So God surprised him. You know, when you shared that word this morning, that God does exceedingly above all we can ask or imagine. Well, God did it. God blew him away by setting Peter free. They were edified. And I think seeing that level of deliverance, what did that do to their faith? I mean, what does it do to your faith, to our faith, when we see God provide in such incredible ways? I think it builds us up. Right? It's a, it's a reaffirmation. God is real. God is good. Prayer really works. So I, I want to close with this. Um, I could use more faith. Maybe all of us could use more faith. And we do have communion as well. We've got time with small groups and all that, so praise God for that. But um, how many would like to see an increase of faith this morning? And if anybody is having some challenging circumstances, you know, the Bible says we rejoice with those who rejoice, we mourn with those who mourn. You may not be in prison by a political power, but you might be having some hard times. Right? So when we break up into small groups, 
Let's share. <laughs> Some hard times. We want to see God intervene. We want to see deliverance. Um, It'd be good to share some some times where you saw God move in your life, right? Those are powerful. Our testimonies are very powerful. So, Lord, we, we just come to you this morning. We thank you that you've given us faith, but we pray for more. The gift of faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of grace. We don't earn it, but we steward it, and we can build it up by reading the Bible, Lord, by praying by receiving encouragement from brothers and sisters. So, Lord, just release faith. Release faith. And we just repent of agreeing with doubt or despair or discouragement or hopelessness, God, or outbursts of anger, Lord, if we've dealt with conflict in ways that are just selfish and immature and of the flesh. We repent of it, Father. And we ask we could be more like Jesus. We could be more selfless and uh, think about your will above our own, above our own needs, desires, preferences. We just ask for your mercy to move into our lives in greater ways this morning. In Jesus' name. Now, we're going to transition into communion, so if Nick and Tabitha could grab that. Why do we take communion? Any thoughts on that? What's that? It does cleanse. Yeah, there is a cleansing act of grace in communion. Remembrance of what Jesus did. I do not want to forget about the cross. As long as I keep the cross in my mind, I'm in a pretty good place, even if things are hard. I just have a thought from the story you were saying how it's so hard sometimes to see it, right? Yeah. And I, I've heard this woman um, focus on the family, and she had an abortion. She couldn't forgive herself or couldn't feel love, but she came to this realization, and she said a thing I'll never forget. She said, God's love isn't based in faith, Tommy. It's, it's grace, Tommy. Yeah, amen, amen. That's a, that is a really good word. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is shared in the context of actually bringing correction in the body of Christ because they were not honoring each other. The Corinthians were not honoring each other as they shared in the meal and took communion. And Father God, this morning we choose to honor you and choose to honor each other and that we respect and identify with those who are going through hardships. 
Lord, we are one body, and we want to support those who need to be supported this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would search our hearts. And if we need to repent or ask for forgiveness, somebody, then give us the grace to do that. We just yield to your mercy. We thank you for shedding your blood for us and reconciling us to you, God, for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So now just take the, the bread, the body, just take it together. Lord, we take and eat in remembrance of you, your body broken for us. And now take the wine, the grape juice, I should say, the blood of Christ shed for us and that we are cleansed from our sins. Lord, we declare this morning that we are cleansed, that we have a clean slate. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and that we are 100% acceptable to you this morning and loved. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now please break up into small groups and if you're going through a crisis, please share that so that people can pray with you and share about times where you've seen God's faithfulness in your past. Thank you everyone for coming and have a blessed week.